It probably comes as no surprise to learn that language and how things are worded and framed is incredibly important in psychology. One clear example of this in the field of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is instead of asking, why would you do this to yourself, which can easily cast shame and judgment, it's better to take a respectful and validating approach, such as by stating and asking, it sounds like this has been helpful to you in some way. In what ways does it help? It gets at a similar answer, but one method is shame-ridden and invalidating, and one is respectfully curious and validating. Likewise, to emphasize the person rather than self-injury behavior, you may have noticed I use person-first language when referencing individuals who self-injure rather than using identity-first language, which includes terms like self-injurer or cutter. In other words, I don't want to conflate a behavior with someone's identity. However, some people prefer this identity-first language, and I will take their lead and refer to them how they prefer. For example, autistic adults often prefer identity-first language when referring to themselves or others with autism. That is, many prefer to be referenced as autistic adults, not adults with autism. My point is, everyone is different, and this includes those who self-injure. What is most important, however, is placing the person at the center and listening to how they reference themselves, the behavior, and even recovery itself. To discuss a new way of thinking about self-injury and how we can take a person-centered approach when discussing and understanding the behavior with special focus on self-injury recovery, I am joined today from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada by Dr. Stephen Lewis and from Curtin University in Western Australia by Dr. Penelope Haskin. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Stephen Lewis is professor of psychology at the University of Guelph and co-founder and co-director of Self-Injury Outreach and Support, and Dr. Penelope Haskin is professor of psychology at Curtin University and co-founder of the International Consortium on Self-Injury in Educational Settings. You may remember Dr. Lewis from Episode 5, where he talked about self-injury and the internet, and Dr. Haskin from Episode 4, where she talked about self-injury stigma and language. They are both past presidents of IISS, thought leaders in the field of self-injury, and published paper after paper. They also just published and co-authored the book, Understanding Self-Injury, A Person-Centered Approach, with Oxford University Press. As you'll hear, their approach situates individuals who self-injure as experts about their own experiences, validates where they are in their experience, and acknowledges the inherent strengths that all individuals possess. The official book launch will be held during the first day of the IISS conference in Vienna in June, but you can buy it online now. Or you can win a free copy on Friday, May 12 by sharing our post on social media. I'll share a few more details at the end of today's episode. Jumping right into things, what is a person-centered approach to understanding self-injury and how is it different than other approaches to understanding self-injury? Sure. Um, I think it's a great question to begin with. And I guess there's a few things that we consider as essential to a person-centered approach. One of which is it situates people situates, sorry, people's lived experience at the forefront. And it brings to light in many ways their concerns, the things that they've shared with us through the research we've conducted that matter to them. It also 
acknowledges the uniqueness of each person's experience and doesn't assume that it's a one shoe fits all kind of approach or that people necessarily have identical kinds of experiences, which you might get through sort of group-based approaches where we look at and compare different groups as an example. And the last thing I would say is that it also explicitly recognizes that all individuals with lived experience have unique strengths and capacities that ought to be harnessed in the work that we do with them. Yeah, and I would echo that entirely and say that from a person-centered perspective, that we situate the person as the expert in their experience. They're the ones that have been through that, they're the ones that have lived their lives. And because of that, we don't make assumptions. So we try to understand what is going on for that person at that time and what their needs are at that time without jumping to conclusions about what they might need. I was also going to echo the idea that individuals who self-injure have a lot of strengths, that it's more than their self-injury. We don't necessarily position self-injury as the focal point, but recognise that the individual is much more than that and have strength and resilience, a lot to bring to the table in terms of understanding their experience and their needs, and that we should be listening to that. What are some of the pre-existing models that this might differ a little bit from? Not that those other models are bad or negative in any way, but how would you say this would be different? I think a lot of the models of self-injury that we have come from a very medical point of view, where NSSI is seen as something of a pathology that needs to be fixed. So the focus then becomes, how do we stop this behaviour? And that tends to become highlighted. Other models would sort of talk about how people might move progressively through stages in a very linear fashion, whereas we tend to take the approach that recovery from NSSI and that journey is not linear. People can go back and forward, different things can be important at different times, and that there's not a set time frame in which this might happen. I think the other thing people sort of think about as recovery is a return to normal functioning, and we would question, you know, what is normal? So we try to take some of that off the table, take some of that deficit-based approach away. And rather than focusing on what is wrong with this person and we need to fix it, really getting a deeper understanding of what is going on for them and what their experience is. Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, and I completely echo what Penny just said, that a lot of existing models, a lot of the ways that we've traditionally tended to examine self-injury and other mental health phenomena for that matter, has been largely a deficit-based focus, wherein we look at individuals and we try and identify what they may not have, what they might be lacking. So for example, if we apply that to self-injury, some people might say that individuals who self-injure lack emotion regulation skills or lack a specific kind of coping skill sense. And it's not to say that they won't benefit from learning alternate ways to cope that might help to replace self-injury, But it also recognizes very explicitly a person-centered approach that all individuals indeed have strengths. And that could be things such as being willing to talk about self-injury, for example, when that is tremendously difficult for so many people. And we've seen that a lot in the research that we've done. It recognizes that attempts to try alternatives is in fact a strength. There's a willingness to try new things. And those are just some examples of the many strengths that all individuals have, which I think is one of the major parts of the model and our approach that really separates it from sort of traditional ways of understanding and researching self-injury and and also just historically dominant ways of thinking about the behavior. 
I like how you take a positive psychology approach. I know you mentioned that in the book where it's not so much deficit-based and also focus on centering the stories of individuals with lived experience of self-injury and highlighting their strengths in recovery. And since today we're talking a lot about recovery and the recovery process in past episodes, when we've interviewed individuals with lived experience, listeners might remember me asking about recovery in terms of whatever that might mean to them. So I know recovery can mean different things to different people. Can you talk about the variety of ways in which recovery can be viewed? That stems from the models of self-injury we have, those stages of change kind of models that people go through and that return to normal. When we talk to people who self-injure and ask them what recovery looks like for them, Often they will say, when I no longer have thoughts of self-injury or no longer, it's no longer my go-to option, I stop self-injury. I think we'll talk a little bit about the framework that we've got in the book a bit later. But one of the things we highlight is that those thoughts and urges may continue for years after somebody stops self-injuring. So we like to sort of set realistic expectations for what recovery looks like, that it's difficult. Self-injury is a coping strategy that works. So recognising, as Stephen said, that even being able to talk about it, even being able to think about NSI recovery and start that process is a strength that needs to be recognised. I gave a, a workshop the other day to some clinical psychology master's students and we were talking about rewarding small steps in that recovery process. So rather than seeing cessation of self-injury as the primary immediate outcome, how can we reward those little things that come along the way in that recovery process? And one of the students, their first response was, well, they turned up to therapy. Like, yep, that's a big first step. So rewarding those little things along the way, I think, is quite important. And in many ways, those things are part and parcel of recognizing explicitly the many strengths that people have and the things that they bring to the table when they are embarking on their own recovery journeys. And I think also just commensurate with this view of looking at recovery in this way from a person-centered standpoint. It's a recognition that all individuals will have different kinds of experiences and that it's not a one-shoe-fits-all kind of approach or a cookie-cutter approach to recovery. And as Penny indicated, which we'll be talking about a bit later in terms of the model that we've developed to situate and conceptualize recovery, it doesn't also mean that all those different components necessarily fit any one person at any one time. And indeed, they might fit different people's experiences to different degrees at different points in time. And that really just goes back to that uniqueness that for each person's experience, and even just the word recovery and its application to self-injury might fit some people's experiences. We've conducted research where we've asked people about the word recovery and what it means to them and for some people, it is a salient part of how they view their experience because they use that term and it's meaningful to them. Other people may use other terms. They'll use terms like journey or sort of navigating through adversities they might have experienced. So even this notion of recovery as a term, I think from a person-centered framework also has to be considered as something that does fit for many people, but not necessarily everyone. I think that reflects another part of the book where we talk about the language we use to talk about self-injury and using person-centered language, using language that doesn't perpetuate stigma. And recovery as a term, for some people, might imply that there's something to recover from. It sort of comes back to that deficit-based approach of something is wrong and needs to be fixed, whereas Stephen said for some people that's a very pertinent term. 
So we talk about using people's own language to reflect back to them and recognise their understanding of their own experience in their own words. And often the term recovery is sort of thought about as the sort of return to what was before, that return to sort of quote unquote normal. But we've now done several studies where people have shared their lived experiences in different capacities. And it is so, so much more than that. And a lot of people talk about that upon reflection, as they look back at what they've been through, it certainly wasn't a linear progression from a place where they were self-injuring to a place where they're doing it less to a place where perhaps not doing it anymore. That thoughts and urges persist. Sometimes they never fully go away. They certainly reduce in their intensity, reduce in their frequency, but they still come up. What changes is how they respond to those urges and those thoughts when they arise. And upon reflection, a lot of people have also shared in some of our recent studies, aspects of resilience, of having self-acceptance, of being compassionate toward oneself, and as having hope for the future, as seeing themselves as able to take on different challenges, different obstacles, as they may present themselves, as they've now navigated through that part of their recovery journey. So we have some individuals who see recovery as complete cessation of self-injury altogether. Others, that's not necessarily the ultimate goal. Maybe it's promoting health and wellness. And others, it's both cessation of self-injury and the urges to self-injure. And I think the tricky part comes for parents and also a lot of therapists who feel it is their responsibility to get that person to a complete cessation of self-injury. One of the challenging things for parents, loved ones, clinicians, is when somebody says, I really want to stop self-injury, but they continue to self-injure. And I think that feels like, to parents and clinicians, that it can feel like a bit of a lost cause. Like, why do you keep self-injuring? You tell me you want to stop, but you keep doing it. And I think something that's really important to bear in mind is that for a lot of people who have a history of self-injury, there's a lot of ambivalence there. They can hold two competing thoughts at once. They can genuinely want to reduce this behaviour. They see the negative impacts that it has both on their own mental health, on their physical appearance, if there's scarring involved. They can see the impact on family and friends. But at the same time, it's a very effective coping strategy that they've come to rely on that frankly works. And finding alternatives to that is very, very difficult. Self-injury is easy, accessible, cheap, effective. Things like going for a run require effort. Learning to slow down, I guess, and learn to sit with some of that distress, to reduce that arousal level down to something that's more manageable is incredibly hard. So we need to be forgiving and understanding to some extent to say, look, I understand this is a difficult thing. One of the things that we talk about in the framework is fostering self-efficacy. And to me, that comes in a number of different ways. Firstly, it's self-efficacy to resist urges to self-injure. So how much does somebody believe that they can resist those urges? So as Stephen said, the thoughts and urges may persist, but how do people respond to those? Can we see changes in how people respond to those thoughts and urges? And it may mean that you know somebody might be reducing their self-injury and then they self-injure again. And it's about reframing that and sort of saying, okay, I've had a really bad week. It's not surprising I self-injured, but I'm learning other coping strategies. The other way that I look at self-efficacy is the self-efficacy to actually engage in alternate behaviours, alternate coping strategies. 
you know, can I actually do that? Do I have the skills to do that? Do I have the confidence that I can reduce my distress in other ways? And again, that's going to come with time and with practice and not every strategy is going to work for every person. So there's going to be a degree of trial and error. So coming back to that sense of ambivalence, I think that's something that's really important to recognise as a way of validating the person's experience and recognising they may not want to stop self-injury right now or they may simultaneously want to stop but want to have it in their toolbox just in case. And I think then what can also be helpful in those contexts is to validate that and to explicitly acknowledge that this is very difficult to just stop. If it were that easy, people would. And hearing that in our experience can really go a long way. Because again, when we think about approaching self-injury from a person-centered approach or framework, it's about meeting people where they are. And for some people, they may be in a place of ambivalence. They may be in a place where they're really trying, but it's also really hard. It's really hard to stop. And people will have periods of time perhaps where they're trying and things are going well. But as Penny just pointed out, there may still be times when there's a setback. That doesn't mean either that that setback indicates the person is back to square one either, because they've gone a period of time perhaps where they haven't acted on an urge, where an urge has been experienced, but it has subsided. Maybe they used an alternative strategy that they found useful. But it's recognizing that nonlinear progression is also a part of the experience and being able to see setbacks, not as a step back to square one, but as part of the process as well. I will often remind parents or tell parents that they only see the times in which their child, well, I mean, this could also apply for adults too. We only see the times in which they self-injured, not the times that they resisted the urge, all the successes. So reframing a lot of this to that strengths you've done so well. These are things that you have done to cope instead of self-injure. Let's bring more attention to that rather than just focusing on the behavior itself and how many times you did self-injure. And in many ways, too, as Penny, I think, was pointing out, that that can also help to fuel and foster self-efficacy because it explicitly recognized that people have gone a period of time without acting. They have been putting in a lot of effort, and those things ought to be championed and cheerleaded. Yeah, and I think in sort of talking about that setback, lapses, relapse, whatever word people want to use, we're really borrowing from the drug and alcohol literature where people talk about people who've been abstaining from drinking for so long and then have a relapse. And the danger there is if somebody has a drink, they may experience what's called the abstinence violation effect, where they go, well, I've had a drink, I've blown it now, I may as well keep drinking. And the challenge there is to reframe that and go, oh, no, this is just one setback. As Stephen said, this is not back to square one. I have all these other strengths. This is hard. I'm working on it and keep moving forward rather than throwing in towel and going, well, why bother? You had mentioned that in the book, differentiating between a lapse and a relapse, which I think is new terminology to a lot of people, even though it's been in the literature for a long time. Can you give additional examples of what a lapse for someone who self-injures, what that might look like compared to a relapse? I think it really is the difference between sort of a one-off instance of self-injury versus going back to square one and using it as a, a primary coping strategy. It really is about reframing that first instance to say, okay, this is, doesn't mean I'm back to square one. I'm learning other coping strategies. There have been times I've been able to resist those urges. 
as Stephen said, rewarding those times and recognising that it's not a linear process. So setbacks or lapses are common, are to be expected, but having that focus on, you know, you are actually working hard here, this is a difficult process, it's not surprising that in a really stressful situation that you've used self-injury because that's what you've been used to before, but look at all the other times that you've been able to resist those urges and let's keep working on those alternative coping strategies. Not setting people up for failure and not seeing that lapse as the failure. In some of our other research we've conducted, where we've directly asked people about, you know, what recovery means to them, what their experiences look like, how they sort of have looked at themselves and looked at their experience over the course of their own recovery journeys. That a lot of people do come over time to see that there are indeed lapses over the course of that experience of recovery, but they still cultivate their own sense of resilience and efficacy alongside that. So that when those lapses occur, they can still reflect on the times where they haven't acted on an urge and the periods of time they've gone without acting on an urge and use that as fuel and motivation to keep going forward. One other thing that I would add to that is focusing on a lapse or a relapse is, again, focusing on the behaviour. And we make quite a point that from a person-centred approach, it's not about the behaviour per se. There's a lot of other stuff going on. So somebody may still be self-injuring, but they're able to identify some of their strengths and capitalise on those. There may be underlying adversities that they're trying to deal with, whether that's depression or anxiety or interpersonal problems or trauma. They may be making progress in that area, even though the self-injury itself may not be reducing just yet. Other parts of our framework that we talk about, when we talk to people with lived experience about what recovery is and what it looks like, they talk about things that others often don't recognise, like the importance of scarring and the meaning of scarring to them if they have scars. So maybe somebody's starting to come to terms with their scars and understand them and derive strength from those, but they're still self-injuring. There's a lot of other areas where people can still be making a lot of gains and focusing solely on the self-injury detracts from that progress that's been made in other areas. We conducted a study not too long ago, and we were looking at people's positive self-perceptions that come about over the course of people's journeys through self-injury. And just building on what Penny was saying about sort of not just focusing on the behavior itself, and certainly people do focus there because it's highly salient to their lived experience. At the same time, however, as people build that self-efficacy, as they recognize that they can experience an urge but not act on that urge, what we also see through what people have shared is that those positive ways of seeing themselves, perhaps, and those different ways they look at their experience of self-injury start to translate outside of that. So they start to see themselves as having a lot of capacity to take on other things and face other obstacles that are not circumscribed just to self-injury, but to all other obstacles that people might experience over the course of their lives in terms of the jobs they may want to pursue, academic um, context, interpersonal relationships, and so on and so forth. I'm reflecting on my own my own work. In our clinic, we do a lot of relapse prevention for depression and also talk about the difference between a lapse and relapse when it comes to depressive symptoms. We might have a young person come in on a Monday and say, oh, my depression came back this weekend after having a breakup. Well, that's 
probably more of a lapse in the sense that it's appropriately sad, incredibly disappointing news, heartbreaking, but that doesn't necessarily mean the depression has returned. And similar, I think, as you're describing, one self-injury episode focusing on so much of the behavior isn't as important as all the times that they haven't self-injured. And I've seen this where parents and even sometimes significant others after someone has stopped self-injuring for a while and they might have a lapse, it's interpreted by other people as a relapse, not so much as the person themselves with lived experience. And I think there's a lot of miscommunication and frustration for individuals with lived experience at times because they're thinking, I'm not back to square one. I can still, we can still go out on this vacation. I can still go to camp and I'm going to be okay. I'm not in a horrible mindset. It was just a lapse. It was a one-time thing. So I think from the perspective of loved ones and caregivers and even partners, that can be something where they might lag, where those with individuals with lived experience might be okay with. I think in some ways, what you've just described brings up a couple of different thoughts, one of which is even the use of the term relapse by someone else to apply to someone else's experience of self-injury may have a different meaning for the individual who self-injures, perhaps, than what it might mean to the young person who's using that term. So it does, I think, harken back to thinking about and reflecting carefully upon the terms that we use, because even though they're used, they may be interpreted and might come across as having different levels of meaning to different people. So going back to your point, people may not see that as a relapse. They may see that as a setback, a one-off thing that happened, and they're telling everyone else that they're okay. There are a couple of things there. I think for a lot of people who don't understand self-injury, there's a lot of fear associated with it. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Self-injury seems to violate that human desire to live and to be pain-free and to not hurt yourself. So for people without that lived experience, the caregivers, significant others, even clinicians, I think that concept can be very difficult to understand. You know, I've had meetings with very senior clinicians who will say to me, I just don't get it. Why would somebody hurt themselves? So I think if there hasn't been clear communication from that person-centered approach of what is this experience for that person, what does it mean to them? If those fears are activated, I think parents, caregivers, teachers, clinicians can feel a sense of relief when somebody stops self-injuring that, okay, things are better now. I don't have to worry anymore. And then somebody self-injures again and it's right back to, oh, no, I'm scared. What do I do? We're back to square one. When, as you say, that may not actually be the case. The individual is actually doing okay. This was a one-off they needed to cope with this particular situation and they know that they're going to be fine moving forward. But I think sometimes that fear is just reactivated. Of, oh, my God, what do I do again? I thought we were over this. Part of that might also be an artifact of a lot of discourses that revolve around self-injury. For example, the notion that individuals who self-injure are inherently vulnerable. We see that in research contexts. We do everything, and rightfully so, do ethical research to protect people. But at the same time, we have to recognize that people with lived experience of self-injury have and possess numerous strengths. For individuals who might experience someone who has self-injured again or after a sustained period of time for which that has not happened, it's recognizing that the strength that it took to get to that place as well and being able to use that and reflect that back and not necessarily interpret or perhaps in some cases overinterpret a lapse as being more than it actually is, as just a lapse. 
I appreciate that comment because I think sometimes we look at individuals or clinicians in particular, I'm going to say in parents, may look at individuals with lived experience as being too vulnerable or I'm going to put in quotation marks with my fingers here, fragile, and they can't tolerate difficult experiences when reality they can. They're very resilient. Believing in them and believing that they can actually cope, I think is incredibly encouraging. I think that also comes back to the deficit-based approach that has been a traditional way of understanding self-injury. As Stephen mentioned before, we talk about people who self-injure as lacking coping strategies, lacking effective emotion regulation. They actually have a really fantastic coping strategy and are very good at regulating their emotion. The fact that they're using a method that may not be socially acceptable doesn't detract from the fact that they are actually managing their emotions. I have a student who's doing her doctoral thesis on the concept of avoidance in self-injury and the idea that people don't like to sit with uncomfortable emotions and might use self-injury as a means of escaping that uncomfortable emotion or sorry, avoiding that emotion. And in her interviews, when she said, look, some people conceptualise self-injury as a form of avoidance, her participants got really angry. And they said, what am I avoiding? I'm actively dealing with what's going on for me. I'm not avoiding anything, but I really rejected that term and for avoidance, the very negative label. And it's like, no, I'm actively working on this. It may not be the way you like it. <laughs> and I'm trying to learn new alternatives and new ways of doing that. But, you know, there is a strength there in recognising distress and finding ways to deal with it. And over time, working towards alternative ways of doing that. What are some thoughts within the person-centered framework where some might use terminology such as being clean for however many days? I mean, know a lot of people will use apps to track how many days that they've not self-injured and how many days they've been quote-unquote clean from self-injury, which I know focuses a lot on the behavior itself, but I wonder for some how helpful that is. Well, I think part of the terminology that people use to describe their own experiences will inevitably vary person to person. Some of those terminologies stem from a lot of the discourse and language that's used around self-injury, even within the model, thinking about recovery, lapse, relapse. All these different terms are sort of part and parcel of a certain kind of terminology that people might use to describe their experiences. So I think for some people that is relevant terminology for their own experience, but not necessarily for everyone. If people are finding it useful to track the number of days that they've experienced without having acted on an urge to self-injure, or perhaps without having urges to self-injure, if that's relevant for them, and that works for them, that works for them. That's a part of what works for them in terms of their unique, their person-centered approach to navigating their own recovery. It may not work for everyone. I think part of it too, though, is if people are somehow tracking the times that they're not self-injuring, it's also trying to foster a recognition about what they're doing and trying to think outside of just the self-injury itself and are they using alternative strategies? What are those? Are they going for a run? Are they writing in a journal? Are they taking a, a relaxing bath? Are they phoning a friend? Whatever it is that they're doing, they're doing something in place of the behavior. And in essence, what they're doing is building efficacy around their capacity to withstand an urge and to try something else in place of self-injury. So I think part of that is a shift toward thinking outside of just the experience of self-injury to the other things that are also being cultivated along 
with that in terms of what's going on in their recovery journey, self-efficacy to cope in different ways, to try different strategies, and to recognize that, you know what, they can. And that in itself can be pretty significant for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that can be huge. And as we've said a lot, learning alternative strategies can be very hard and it takes time and it takes practice. And I was going to say that the whole concept of the person-centered approach is looking at the person who's sitting in front of you and what is going on for them and what they need and what might work for them. And not every the same thing's not going to work for everyone. So some people will find it helpful to monitor a number of days since they self-injured as a motivational tool. Other people may see that monitoring and then perhaps having a lapse is a reminder of the self-injury. They may see that as a failure because they can see all the days they didn't act on the urge and then, oops, here's the day I did. So for those, monitoring may not be helpful. But I really love Stephen's idea of monitoring the positive outcomes as well, monitoring the urges even or monitoring the thoughts and writing down what did I do instead because I think that really allows people to monitor the changes it's not focusing just on the behaviour, just on number of days of self-injury, but really monitoring that growth and that progression in other areas as well. When someone has an urge to self-injure and they didn't act on it, I'm always curious to know what was different. How were they able to cope differently in that time? And that goes right in line with what both of you are saying, becoming more mindful of those healthier strategies or, or I'll just say strength-based strategies. I asked about apps, about how many days being clean. And I'm just reminded as we're talking of how everyone is so different. And I think within the person-centered framework, we recognize that everyone has their own story, their own lived experience, what works for them, their own terminology. And even when we did an episode recently on the psychology of self-injury scarring, and we just referenced a little bit about that in our conversation, but we had a listener write a nice review. I think it was on Apple Podcasts about how one of the functions of self-injury for them is to cause scarring. And so just thinking about how everyone is so different in being able to take this approach and this framework that the two of you are offering validates so much of that. I think, as we said before, for people who have scars, that can be quite a pertinent thing in their processing of their self-injury and what that recovery in inverted commas might look like. I know Stephen's done quite a bit of work in this and looking at how some people view their scars as a source of shame, of a reminder of tough times that they've been through, that they might feel embarrassed about their scars, they are concerned about how other people might respond to those scars if they see them, what kind of reactions, negative reactions they might get, and go to great efforts to conceal their scars from both themselves and from other people. Whereas other people take their scars as a sign of resilience, as a sign of strength, as a reminder of, hey, yes, I had this tough time, but I got through it. And I think there's also, for some people, an identity piece in there, that people might identify themselves as somebody who self-injures, and their scars become an integral part of that identity. I think there's less research around that concept, but it's something that I'm really curious about in what the meaning making of those scars looks like for people who might view those scars as integral to who they are and what their lived experience has been. Yeah, we've certainly seen that in some of the work that we've conducted. For example, we've seen even where people will have a sense of shame associated with having scarring from self-injury, but that doesn't necessarily last. 
And over time, again, if we think about this as a nonlinear sort of unfolding process, and for some people it's an ongoing and enduring process, they do come to see their scarring in a different light. Some people refer to them as battle wounds or as some sort of indicator of having inner fortitude for having persevered through tremendous adversity. And they can sort of see their scars and have that remind them of the fact that they've made it. And they've navigated through some pretty tough times. Another thing we've also seen, just building on what Penny was saying too, is that for some people, as they're sort of embarking on their own journey of recovery, there is a bit of a sense of loss. A loss of how they might have seen themselves or identified themselves as someone who engages in self-injury and then having to grapple with and come to terms with having residual scarring, which may be a salient reminder of that part of themselves, of that part of their lived experience. But even still, over time, they do tend to also begin to see themselves in different ways. They see themselves as having more resilience as having a lot of strength, as having a lot of things they want to give and offer in different contexts. So scarring still serves as a reminder. It's a part of maybe that identity, which I think we really have to do a lot more research on in many ways. But we do see from one of our recent studies where people do talk about this sense of loss and that sort of transition in terms of how they see and how they understand who they are as a person. I've known of some individuals who actually, when they make that decision to stop self-injuring, they weep. They cry and mourn at the loss because of such a big decision, almost as if they're losing a friend. I like how you're both careful to point out that there is more to a person's story than self-injury. We've talked a little bit about that, you know, not just focusing on the behavior. Can you talk about key components of a person-centered approach? We've covered some of them already, but can you talk about some additional key components of a person-centered approach when talking to someone about self-injury? For example, what should family members, friends, and even us as clinicians and researchers keep in mind? So I think part of it is meeting people where they are. If this is something that is known to be difficult for that individual to just talk about, it's validating that and recognizing that explicitly. If people are talking about and sharing to some degree some of the reasons why they self-injure, it's validating that self-injury serves a purpose. It fills a need. That's why it's being engaged in, at times engaged in repeatedly. And being able to validate that, that's not condoning it as a behavior that necessarily that person may want them to keep doing, because this is often coming from a place of concern, but it does serve a purpose for that person and that ought to be recognized. If we're talking about recovery, as we have been a fair bit in this podcast, it's recognizing people where they are in terms of maybe not being ready to stop. It's explicit recognition of the terms that they may use to describe their experience. We tended at a few already that might sort of revolve around addiction kind of nomenclature, things like recovery and relapse. If they're using these terms, it's not our position to go in and correct them but to reflect back and use the same terms that they're using, because that tells them that, in fact, we're listening. It's also explicit recognition of the strength. So if they're talking about self-injury, they haven't been doing it for quite some time. It's recognizing that and saying, you know, this is really hard, but look, I'm really, you know, glad that you're open to talking about this with me. I know it's really hard and being able to reflect that. Yeah, I think that covers all the points that or most of the points that I was going to make as well, I think it comes back to not making assumptions. And we 
borrow the term respectful curiosity from others in the field to help guide the conversations around self-injury. So in the book, we provide some suggested phrasing that people can use to talk about self-injury and some suggested ways that people can ask about it and how they can acknowledge and validate that experience. So it's not about jumping in and saying, why would you do this to yourself? It's, you know, I understand that you're going through a lot lately. Can you tell me a little bit about what this means to you? Can you tell me a bit about what self-injury does for you? And coming from that place of genuine respect, genuinely wanting to understand that experience from that individual's perspective without putting judgments, without putting expectations, without making ultimatums. So, you know, we definitely don't want to be doing the you have to stop self-injury or, you know, the very first step is getting that true understanding of what's going on. And that can be difficult, particularly for parents and loved ones who are genuinely concerned and may not understand why somebody would self-injure. So that first step to having those conversations or in those conversations is sometimes putting your own attitudes and your own feelings aside for a minute to just listen to what the person has to say. As we've said before, having that conversation can be really, really difficult. We actually include in our framework the concept of navigating disclosures of self-injury. If somebody's thinking about talking to somebody, thinking about sharing their experiences, how would they go about doing that? What are the things they might want to think about in approaching somebody? So there's really two sides here. It's from the individual with lived experience. What do they need to think about if they want to share that experience with somebody else? What do they expect to happen from that conversation? What reactions might they get? Good, bad, indifferent? How might that change the relationship with the person that they're sharing that information with? Thinking about the practical stuff, starting that conversation in a quiet environment where there's plenty of time and they're not going to be interrupted. The other thing that we say both to individuals who self-injure and their loved ones is it's not one conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. We talk a lot about that first conversation, but it's not. It's a conversation over time. Over time, more and more details might be shared. Over time, there might be greater and greater understanding. And as with the whole non-linear approach, that conversation will change and will focus on different things at different times. So I think for parents, caregivers, clinicians, having that respectful curiosity, validating that self-injury does serve a purpose for somebody, people don't self-injure for no reason. There's something underlying that, recognising that ambivalence that somebody might want to stop and not stop at the same time, rewarding the gains they have made, recognising their strengths, all of those things that have tied up in that person-centred approach. Just going back to what we were discussing earlier about sort of the underlying sort of tenets, if you will, of a person-centred approach, it's situating them as experts in their own lived experience. And by virtue of using a respectful curiosity, we're doing just that. We're respectfully asking about what their experience is like for them, trying to understand from their standpoint, perhaps, why they're engaging in the behavior, what does make it difficult to talk about and so forth. And I would just clarify that point about people being experts in their own experience, but that doesn't mean they can necessarily articulate clearly why they're self-injuring or what's going on for them. Some people will say, I don't know. I don't know why I do this. You know, I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. So we can't necessarily expect people to have a nice, clearly articulated understanding for themselves sometimes of why they're doing this. So it's not about pushing somebody and it's like, why are you doing this? Tell me what's going on. But as Stephen's saying, meeting people where they are, 
in trying to understand what their experience is. That's also why we see conversations as ongoing and not just a one-off conversation that happens, but the conversations will unfold over time. And I like how when we have these conversations, we can acknowledge that it can be hard to talk about for a lot of people and meeting them where they're at, I think is really important. And sometimes like Dr. Haskin, you're saying they don't know why they self-injure. I mean, I work with young people, so I work with a lot of parents and the parents are like, they just got to tell me why and then I can help them. It's like, well, (laughs) they might not know why and that doesn't mean you can't help them. There are other ways. Speaking of helping, how can we as therapists, researchers, parents, people with lived experience, and just anyone in general practically advocate for those who self-injure, particularly from this person-centered approach? Listen to people. The whole thing is about listening to people, listening to their experiences. As Stephen has said before, people with lived experience of self-injury have a lot to offer. We shouldn't necessarily be thinking of people as inherently vulnerable. There are a lot of strengths. There's a lot of knowledge to be gained. And that knowledge can be used in informing the research agenda, for example. A lot of the work that we've been doing around the meaning of scarring, the difficulties with disclosure and the decision-making that goes into that, what recovery means to people, identifying strengths, that's come from people with lived experience, saying this is what it's like for me as somebody who walks around with a history of self-injury. You know, I'm not interested in risk and protective factors. I'm interested in this is me walking around every day. This is what I deal with. So that's really directed the research agenda to looking more at that lived experience or what we term the experience of self-injury. So focusing on things like stigma, for example, which we haven't really talked about yet, but it's another big piece of this picture and feeds into how people view themselves, how they might navigate disclosures with other people, how they might view their scarring and so on. That can also feed into a clinical setting as well. So again, coming back to meeting people where they are, listening to what's going on for them, offering what they need right now, rather than going, okay, well, you self-injure, therefore we must implement this treatment. And I have seen that amongst some of my team, that their clinicians that they saw just immediately made assumptions of, obviously, this is what's going on, so this is the treatment you need. And ultimately, that's not what serves their purpose at the time. So I would say it really boils down to listening to individuals with experience and what they have to offer. Yeah, I would definitely echo everything that Penny just said. And even just thinking about, about research and even how it's been historically conducted. Typically, we see research being conducted with individuals with lived experience who play the role of participants when in fact they can play other roles in the research process. And there's particular methodologies that we can employ that allow for that. So for example, there's participatory based research, which brings people into the research process from the very beginning. So people might play a role in fueling a research agenda and um, helping to inform a research question. People might then play a participatory role in different aspects of the research process. We have several studies going on like this in our lab right now. And they also then play a role in the dissemination of findings. So we see that people can play a role in various aspects of that process. Now, a lot of that's easier said than done. And I think Penny articulated a couple of the potential barriers to doing that. For example, stigma. Stigma might serve as a barrier for people to become involved, to think they can, in fact, become involved. 
Um, we've written a paper as well um, where we were looking at some of the things that are important to consider when involving people with lived experience of self-injury within the field of psychology. In that regard, stigma is, again, a significant barrier. So that's one thing I think that is needed in order to really try and push forward with a person-centered approach in research, but not just in research, in clinical work as well. Stigma is often an impediment for people to seek professional help. They have different fears and concerns about what that might entail, what that might be, what that might mean for them. Stigma is one part of that, the set of barriers perhaps that might preclude someone from seeking that as an option for them. And then also from a stigma standpoint, it's looking at ways we can foster more compassionate understanding in society about self-injury. And that boils down to how we think about, how we talk about, how we approach self-injury and how we importantly interact with individuals who have a history of self-injury. So stigma, I think, is a huge part of that. In doing so, I think we can have a big impact in terms of conducting more meaningful and more impactful research, engaging more in, in more impactful clinical work in many ways to ensure that people are also included, and in terms of fostering greater awareness, but not just awareness, I think it really boils down to a compassionate understanding about self-injury and about individuals who engage in it. And that's where I think circling back, it all boils down to listening to people and meeting them where they are. So we've been talking a lot about this person-centered framework and approach and how it applies to people with lived experience, also therapists, researchers. So if we were to bring everything together, based on our conversation today, what one primary recommendation would you have for parents of people who self-injure? My go-to response for that is always don't freak out. Take the time to recognize your own reaction to self-injury validate those but maybe put them aside for a little bit while trying to genuinely understand what is going on for their child and meeting them where they are and supporting them in what they need right now so fundamentally yes this might be scary yes that's a valid experience for parents genuinely understand what's going on for that child it's also about listening to what they're feeling listening to their emotions and listening to what they need in those moments and being able to importantly validate that experience for them. And listening isn't always about saying, I understand how you feel, because we might not, and we might not, we might think we do, but we don't. And Dr. Haskin, when you're talking about don't freak out, I keep telling parents, if you did, that's okay, go back, apologize, have a do-over. That, in my experience, has been so helpful for so many relationships between parents and their young people. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other professionals, whether clinicians, researchers? For researchers, I would say don't be scared of including people with lived experience in the process. I've had experiences where I have actively wanted to engage people with lived experience in the research process and met that barrier of hospitals, ethics committees, whatever, saying, no, they're too vulnerable, you can't talk to them. I'd love to break that down and be able to acknowledge that people with a history of self-injury often want to participate in research. They want to have their voices heard. They want to make a difference. There are very altruistic reasons for engaging in research. So let's recognize that and encourage that and use that resource in our research and clinical practice. Yeah, I, I think a big part of the message I would have for professionals is to 
really argue for and enact efforts to bring about more inclusivity, to ensure that people with lived experience are afforded opportunities to be involved at different points in time in different roles, obviously in terms of what they may want. But to Penny's point, there's a lot of individuals out there who have lived experience, who actively want to contribute, who actively want to do something to give back, who have a lot to offer. So I think it's incumbent upon us to do something about that and to really play a role as professionals to advocate for greater inclusion and to really pave the way by breaking down a lot of these barriers and obstacles and giving people opportunities to play whatever role they want to play, whether that be in research, that be in advocacy, or be in in any other kind of role they can see themselves as undertaking, but really doing our due diligence to make those opportunities available. And finally, what would you recommend to people with lived experience above and beyond what you've already shared? What I hope to achieve in advocating for a person-centered approach is that people with lived experience feel validated, that they feel that by taking a person-centered approach that they get to share their experiences in a way where they're not expecting judgment. We've presented elements of this book in different ways, in different papers, in different workshops, in different forums. And we've had universally a really positive experience and positive feedback from people with lived experience who say things like, you know, you've just captured it. I've never heard it put that way and it's just spot on. Or nobody's ever understood it like this. Or that we're touching on things that no one ever talks about. And no one ever talks about scarring or disclosures or strengths. And thank you for doing that. So in this process of the work that we've done in this space, in that person-centred approach, I hope we give strength to people with lived experience. I hope we encourage them to be more involved in research and sharing their stories, advocating for people, and give them some hope that there are people who do understand and that maybe we are hoping to break down some of that stigma and some of those misunderstandings in the community to allow people to share their voice. Yeah, I hope that for people with lived experience that ultimately and fundamentally they feel heard. For far too long, I think, people's lived experiences have been silenced or at least not heard enough. And I think through some of the work that we've been doing in research and advocacy and outreach, we're trying to give overdue and needed voice to these lived experience concerns. So I hope that through reading this book, through listening to this podcast, that people with experience feel heard, feel validated, perhaps feel more understood, feel more accepted. And to Penny's point, feel hopeful. Hopeful that there is a lot of efforts going on right now, which are advocating for a lot of the experiences that are germane to them. And I hope that through that process, they might feel more hopeful about their own experiences and also perhaps more inspired as well to play a role in the field as we move forward. I love it. Thinking about your book, I've already added it to my list of recommended resources to parents and professionals that I hand out whenever I present on this. And speaking of your book, you are offering to do a giveaway of a free copy? We are indeed. So we will post to social media. So for those that are listening, go to my Instagram, Twitter pages at Doc Westers or IS Facebook and Twitter. When you see us post about this episode, 
tag someone that you know in it for them to see, and that will be automatically one entry. And then for anyone that shares it to their social media pages that we can track, it will be two entries, worth two entries, and we'll do a giveaway. Well, thank you both for sharing this hopeful message related to the person-centered framework and bringing a, a more positive view and centering those with lived experience. I try to do that on this podcast too and give voice to those to share their stories and encourage other people. So thank you for doing the same and thank you for giving away a copy of your book to one of our listeners. It's good to have you both on the podcast again. Thanks so much. Thanks for, for having us. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.